This is Jeff Chrisman, and I'm very joyous and tremendously grateful today to have the opportunity to be visiting in this space with Deborah Eden Toll. Thank you so much, Eden. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm grateful to be here with you, Jeff. Absolutely. And I've had an opportunity to read about you and to learn about, you know, somewhat about your journey and about the work that you have done and are doing. But what I love about having these conversations is I realize that it really gives it a different dimension uh, and it is much more compelling to actually hear about your journey and about your work from you in your own words. But I wanted to take a moment and actually uh, just deeply honor, and this is really from the heart, I really did want to honor the work that you have done and are doing to bridge personal and collective awakening with relational intelligence. And I'm very excited to, uh, to speak to you and hear about uh, the relational aspect of mindfulness as well, not to limit it to that, but I am definitely wanting to, to, uh, to honor the work that you've done and are doing. Thank you. I'm happy to be here for an emergent conversation. So curious what will unfold. Absolutely. And very open, very open. I wanted to start out, I tend to be rather broad. I always tell myself I'm not going to ask this question, but I cannot seem to not ask it. So I get the sense that it's something that just arises. But I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, looking at your life journey, where you have been and where you are now and all of that, all of that in between, as well as the work that you are doing, if I could ask you what this all means to you at a deeper level. Thank you. I'm going to take a moment to just sit with that and be with that. I'm closing my eyes and just listening within. And what's arising right now in response to your question is that this work is a path of freedom freedom from the myth or trance of separation, which I think has confused humanity for so very long and caused a lot of confusion in the earlier years of my life. And so a path which actually offers us direct experience and reconnection with who and what we really are, with the ground of shared presence or being, and then learning to live from that place in our world, learning how we engage with the dynamic, beautiful, messy human world, and how we um, navigate the challenges of our times to be informed by the field of shared presence, or we could call it compassionate awareness, or we could call it intimacy with what is, but that it really is a, a path of freedom from the mind of separation and the collective trance of separation that again has caused disconnect for humans for so, so very long. Yeah, thank you so much. And I, and I really honor that and appreciate it. I, unless I'm mistaken, I feel like, uh, and, I'm, and there again, this is just coming up intuitively, and I'm open to being wrong about this, but I feel like when I was reading about you, I may have seen a photograph of you practicing meditation, right? And I don't know specifically if it was mindfulness meditation. Uh, and I think it, it was a, a you as a teenager. And, I, and I, there again, I'm open to being wrong. There's a photo of that on my website. And there's also a photo of 
me meditating next to my sister at about the ages of five and three. So wow. <laughs> we've had some good influences in our life. In my newest book, which is called Luminous Darkness, an engaged Buddhist approach to embracing the unknown, I talk about how my dad was actually my first spiritual teacher, not in a formal way, but he was really a clear seer in his life. He was very attuned to what mattered and what did not. And so I grew up in a mixed Christian Jewish household with great reverence to Eastern philosophy. And he introduced me quite young to all kinds of different teachings and perspectives and kind of encouraged the sense of, you know, your spiritual path is probably going to be the most important thing in your life. And the form that takes is open listen deeply and see what's true for you, but really got encouraged. And I ended up losing him quite young at age 11. But then oh, the sorry. teaching, thank you. Yeah, yeah. The teachings that I received from him and just the way I got to see him uh, live informed how I navigated grief after that and um, feeling more alone and just the tragedy of loss. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. And I wanted to uh, get some sense in it. And, and I don't want to limit it to being to needing to be linear. But I thought I would ask you just as you know, as you evolved and, and grew from that, uh, those days, uh, just getting some sense of maybe about your practice. And then as you became an adult, just anything that you might share in terms of how that practice, you know, that early practice uh, influenced the choices that you made in terms of what you were going to devote your life to. Uh, and what was what mattered to you as as a young adult? Sure, yeah, I I think that in my experience, and I imagine there are listeners who can relate to this. There was so much evidence as a young person, both through my joy and experiences of connection and vibrant aliveness. I always had a deep connection with the natural world, and also through the losses I experienced. Uh, a real sense of awareness that this life is short and that our time is not to be wasted and that there's a way to live in inquiry throughout our life to really tune into our hearts. And by that, I mean the, the heart of our being, not necessarily the organ of our heart, though it's a deeply intelligent relational organ, but to be giving our lives to inquiry about staying connected to source and to what actually matters and allowing ourselves to uh, as happened in my path start to become aware of some of the ways that the mind of separation as i like to call it the conditioning i had received and that we all receive from society media education family trauma was distracting me from living from and from celebrating my true nature or essence. So back to your exact question, there was a way in which uh, I've always experienced deep interconnection with the world around me, a real sense of reverence for the visible and invisible uh, realms and discounted some of that for a while in order to try to fit in 
to the society around me. When I experienced grief at a young age, I've tried to quell and push away, push down that grief because I knew it wasn't acceptable in the world around me. And so there was a time, I would say I was a teenager, specifically when I just graduated high school, that it was like, I'm done. I'm done trying to fit in. I'm done pushing away parts of me that are deeply calling and that I know carry deep wisdom. And I sort of set out on a journey. I had grown up in Los Angeles and at that point was really battling some of the ways that I felt like it was an overly consumptive environment. So I set out on a, a pilgrimage of sorts to find the teachers, the leaders, the activists who I felt like were taking a stand for serving life in the ways I wanted to serve. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely, definitely. And I, and I was also going to ask as well, I don't know if there are uh, any formative turning points uh, you know, as you as you you know emerged as a young adult and progressing on your life journey, just any uh, you know any formative moments or anything that as you look back, uh, not to put you on the spot at all, but just anything that you might share in terms of uh, you know very meaningful or, or prominent moments uh, on your journey. Yes, there's a couple of things I'll share. Um, one is just that I grew up in a family of activists, people who were really engaged in how can we be of service to some of the suffering around us. So when I was a young person, about the age of six, my mom, who was a hippie artist at the time, read an article about the suffering of families, of course, primarily people of color in downtown Los Angeles who were, had been completely marginalized who were struggling to have their most basic needs met, a phenomenon, an epidemic of tragic homelessness, which now has actually only gotten worse in places like California. But I spent quite a bit of time in my childhood immersed both in the, the beauty of being part of a community of people who were showing up to be of service, seeing what's possible through that seeing how much that wakes us up to who we really are, a felt sense of interconnection, a real in-touchness with our compassion and empathy, a sense that your suffering is not separate from mine. So that experience, alongside the tragedy of what, we, what I witnessed growing up, uh, was not sheltered from, that informed so much of my path, just the spirit of service. It kind of pointed me to the basic human kindness in each of every one of us, which is also the place of our sensitivity, is our greatest strength. It's our greatest strength. And sometimes in a world of competitive capitalism, individualism, uh, there's almost a turning away from that basic kindness and the great resource it is, that sensitivity, to try to get somewhere um, better. Yeah? So that really informed me strongly. And when I um, graduated high school at that time, soon after I did my first meditation retreat, which at that point, I had already had some experience in meditation as I've shared. My grandmother taught me to meditate on a camping trip. Wow. And yet it didn't become a daily practice until I attended my first retreat, which was a full uh, dive right into 10 days of silence. It was incredibly informative for me both to see more clearly 
ways I caused myself to suffer, habits of my mind that I hadn't been as aware of, and just to see the power of what happens when we're willing to set it down and rest in being in presence. So that led me to, at the same time as having a daily meditation practice, becoming an organic farmer, really deepening my connection with the earth and studying ecological design and ways we can work with the earth. And then what I began to see after an invitation to spend a number of years living in intentional communities, sustainable communities, and traveling to study these places, like experiments where people were looking at how can we live differently together and on the earth. I remember a clear moment when I just became aware that nature has so many of the answers we're seeking, but the human ego seems to continually get in the way. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. I, wanted, <laughs> I wanted to do a deeper dive into seeing clearly, understanding, and deepening in the path of freedom from the human ego. So I became a Zen Buddhist monk at that time at the age of 26 and stayed there for about seven and a half years before emerging back into, uh, well, what people call the real world, I would call the illusory world <laughs> to, to, to serve and to teach. <laughs> yeah. And, and if I could ask you just, you know, going back, you know, at that time when you, uh, you know, when you began to, to teach and that this, you know, this was the, the, the path that, uh, that you were taking, uh, anything that you might share just in terms of what those early experiences were like uh, for you in terms of, you know, actually working with people and, uh, and sharing this with people uh, and just how that, how that informed your evolution as a human being. Sure. Um, while I was still training as a monastic, my teacher invited a group of us training there to begin to teach and to facilitate others. I love the fact that facilitate means to make easier, to make consciousness easier for others, to make clear seeing easier, to make remembering true nature easier. And so I received a incredibly profound training then about facilitation. Uh, those listeners who guide groups or work one-on-one -on -one with people know what an art and practice in itself, spiritual practice, facilitation is. And it's so much a practice of learning how to get out of the way in order to, again, I'm going to use the phrase, rest in shared presence and be able to serve a field that includes individuals, includes the energetics of a whole group. It's for me been very much translated into a path and practice of deep listening within and out, where when I say get out of the way, we're allowing ourself as in small self, as in ego's agenda to be set aside in order to become the more open, spacious presence that can be used to serve consciousness. And I would also say, even in the relational field, you know, one of the books I wrote is called Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourselves, each other, our planet. 
there, it's such a, a practice, a mindfulness practice to pay attention to the way that ego agendas can come up just in socializing or conversing or having this kind of conversation with one another where we can notice, huh, is there a part of me who wants to be liked or who's seeking approval? Is there a part of me who fears getting it wrong? Is there a part of me who's pushing away from vulnerability? There's so much to see, right? Just in the field of relating and equally in the field of facilitating. So I love the notion that we wake up together. We wake up together, not in isolation. We wake up through these conversations you and I are having where we touch one another and inspire one another. And we wake up together in the groups that I guide and facilitate someone's courage completely calls forth someone else's someone's modeling of vulnerability or of dropping into uh, the distilled place of presence models it for someone else yeah yeah and i'm so glad that you were talking and you know, speaking about even these kinds of conversations you know that relate you know the the uh you know the mind the, the mindful the you know, relational mindfulness i don't know if i'm using the right phrase or not yeah but just really paying attention to the relational aspect of, of existence and i was going to say to you that i i found it interesting myself in that i started out five years ago these conversations were about having these conversations and i have since over time have found that it is exactly what you're speaking of, that this it really has become a very deep practice where the conversation flows, but it is not the almost you know, as strange as it sounds to say, it's not really the agenda. It's not really the main focus of, of what's going on here. It, I don't know if that sounds yeah, strange, but not at all. One way I would put it is resting in shared presence is the agenda, if there was one. Yeah. And then we yeah. get to see, we get to through practicing being open, deep listening, we get to practice seeing what emerges through our dynamic, what emerges within me, how does that touch what's in you. And so we're resting in the field of emergence, which is meditating in itself. So I would just offer that when I left the monastery, and of course that was a protected sanctuary of practice, it was a silent monastery, and then moved to a big city like Los Angeles pretty quickly, it was like, oh, I need to help people create more of a bridge and stabilize my own bridge for what relational meditation means, what it means to use all of our conversations and relationships as our meditation, yeah? Yeah, and in the, in the I know that Lee, uh, you know, in terms of uh, of the practice itself, uh, I find it so interesting that it is something that we ultimately, you know, sit with ourselves. And and there again, I don't want to say that I totally understand this. I just know from my own experience that in the early stages, there was really you know paying attention to my own breathing, paying attention to my own thoughts, and it was very difficult to uh, to be able to you know be present enough to pay attention to, um, you know, myself and the thought patterns that were occurring in the internal reactions when I uh, interacted with other people. And so I was going to ask you, is that something that you find that generally for people, it takes some time uh, that you really have that there, I don't want to say have to, but it is ultimately starting out paying attention to, to our thoughts and to what happens in our minds. And then at some point it becomes more, uh, what's the word I'm trying to say here? I don't want to say automatic, but it becomes more second nature that we actually have enough space 
to be able to, uh, to, to actually be mindful of and be present of how we're relating to other people and interacting with them. Sorry, I know that was Yeah, wrong, no, that not at all. I think what I would um, add is that in my experience, because so many people have habits of getting distracted and being distracted in the relational field, not being fully present and being easily distracted when they first come to practice by what's happening out there, uh, it's really important for people to give time and space to a practice that is much more about going within. Uh, we find center, we find the field of being by going within. And it's so interesting that just because of the historical legacy of people training for instance, away at monasteries or in caves in India, which very few people are going to do today. Yeah. There can be an assumption that it's then challenging or different to come and engage